So real quick, just to go through the Dord moments that we've had to ask the question about. In chapter one, we had a Dord moment, a Dicer Deity moment when King Xerxes dumped his queen Vashti uh, because of fearful advice from his advisors and that his boyish pride was hurt. And again, answering these questions, you know, we can't answer them. I can't answer them for you. You have to answer them for yourself. And, and I believe how you answer these questions will largely dictate how you answer the question of your own life and how you follow Christ and, and how much you can trust that God is in control. The next Dicer Deity question was, uh, was it Dicer Deity that, that Esther gained favor with Haggai? Haggai was the eunuch in charge of the harem. And, and if you remember, she uh, gained favor with him. And, and through that favor that she was prepared for one night with the king and, and pleased her and became, pleased him. And she became queen. And was that just a Dicer Deity moment? The next one was when her uncle and her adoptive uh, father, because her parents were killed, uh, overheard a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And that dicer moment where we had to ask the question, hey, what, was it just by chance that he was in the right place in the right time to hear this plot? And then even farther... You know, that, you know, that he decided to do something about it because King Xerxes was, you know, kind of a, a volatile guy, to say the least. So how does that all interact? And then the last one that we've covered, a Dicer Deity moment, was that after Mordecai saved King Xerxes' life, Xerxes fails to uh, reward him. And I thought this was a real interesting question a couple of weeks ago, really asking, is it possible that God can withhold blessing from us in order to move forward a larger plan? And I think that all of these questions, I mean, they're just so good for, for us. And, and our overarching scripture, our New Testament scripture through this series has been Romans eight twenty eight. And that is that, and we know that all things work together for the good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And do we really believe that? Are we able to answer these questions? You know what? These things are being sifted through the permissive will will of God. And that somehow, even if I never see it, I know I have every bit of confidence that God will somehow use this to build the kingdom, to strengthen people, to, to do his will. These are the questions not only of Esther, but they're the questions of our life. So, if you would, uh, you can open up your Bibles uh, to Esther chapter 3. You can find uh, chapter 3 and page 300 of your E3 Bibles. Uh, you can find it somewhere on your iPad, some app, Esther app, uh, you know, or, or however, you know, you like to read scripture or if it's best, you know, best for you, somehow get to Esther chapter three. Okay, very good. So verse one, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, over all the other nobles. 
making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman and show him respect whenever he passed by, for the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Verse 3, Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Morty, why are you disobeying the king's command? You stupid, you know King Cray Cray. I mean, he's crazy, man. Why are you disobeying? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about it to see if he would tortify. That's tolerate and Mordecai put together just to save some time, tortify his conduct since Mordecai told him he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So he decided it was not just enough to lay hands on Mordecai, a.k.a. kill him, alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. Lots are actually, quite literally, dice. Isn't that kind of cool? Dice are deity. And here we have our, our dice moment to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. When Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race of people scattered throughout the provinces of your empire who keep them separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. Logical conclusion, right? If it pleases the king... Issue a decree that they be destroyed. And I'll give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to deposit in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money And the people are both yours to do with what you see fit. So basically Xerxes is saying, hey, you know what? You don't have to give 10,000 pounds of silver, which is a whole lot of money. Millions and millions of dollars, right? That, you know what? Don't worry about it. Sounds like a good idea. Let's do genocide. High five, right? (laughs) So on April 17th, The king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officials, the governors of the respective provinces, and the nobles of each province in their own script and language. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the province of the empire, giving the order... That all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated. 
on a single day because being killed by itself, not good enough. Being slaughtered, no. It has to be all three killed, slaughtered, and annihilated, but he did give freedom. It didn't necessarily need to be in that order. The schedule, what this was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messenger and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. That was the capital. That's where they were. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa fell in confused into confusion you think i mean think about that imagine an order like that being levied like you think there'd be a little bit of panic going on okay so we got a couple of things that we need to kind of unpack today uh the the first one is this this uh action that mordecai took that he refused to bow down or show uh, respect to Haman the Agagite. So what's going on here? Okay, why wouldn't he do this? First of all, there's a major tension between the Jews and the Agagites. All right? In 1 Samuel, King Saul was told to completely destroy the Amalekites, but he chose to preserve their king, King Ag or King Aag, Agag, or however you want to say it. I'm going to just call him King Ag. <laughs> so, uh, and I find it interesting. You think about that Ag and Haman was a Ag guy, right? So he's a descendant of, of this king who was spared. And I, I believe that this is important to note because uh, the, the, the first potential holocaust of the Jews ever to be known to be, ha- to, to be planned in history came from Saul's inability or disobedience or falling short of fulfilling what God had called him to do. Now, I understand in our 21st century sensibilities that it's very difficult for us to say, how could God give an order to destroy a people group? And in that, you know, that's something that your pastor struggles with. That's something that you should struggle with. But one thing that we we know is a different time and a different situation. And, and really, basically what we're coming down here to is Saul fulfilled the command to do this all the way up and, to, and just and to the king. And he decided to spare the king. And I think that this is an important note to see and to kind of, kind of uh, internalize and think about in a larger kind of sense that that. Saul was 99% obedient. But in doing so, he became 100% disobedient because he 
willingly did not fulfill what God had explicitly called him or told him to do. And I think there's an important distinction here is we live our lives and trying to fulfill God's call in our life. And sometimes we fall short. I think that's different than what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here with, with, with Saul was a purposeful saying, no, I'm not going to do that. A New Testament illustration in Acts was like, was this with Ananias and Sapphira. And it's one of the most unnerving stories in the New Testament. One of those, you know, I often joke about a series that uh, I'd like to do called Things I Wish was, Were Not in the Bible. This story would definitely be in that series. And basically what happens is, you know, after Christ's ascension, the church is uh, going through, you know, a bunch of stuff. And, and then the day of Pentecost happened, which is actually today. And people are speaking in tongues and, and 3,000 people got baptized. And then later on, you have all these people and all these believers. And, and they're really excited about the church. And there was this guy named Barnabas who, uh, at this time, he saw that there was some needs of, the, of his fellow believers. And he had some property. He said, you know what? I'm going to sell my property and, and give it to the church. Nobody told him to do that. The, the, you know, God didn't say, you know, the, the apostles told him, you know, Barnabas, you need to sell this property and give it to the church. This is something he wanted to do. And then there was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who said, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. And you know what? We, we, have, a, we have a piece of land too. So they decided, hey, let's sell our land and let's give it to the church. None of the apostles told them they had to do that. God didn't come. An angel didn't say, you have to sell your land. It was just something that, hey, you know what? We want to be part of this movement. And we know that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are in need. We know that, you know, it takes resources to fund the Great Commission, which Christ just gave us to go out and make disciples. You know, it costs money for sandals and food and stuff like that to go out and baptize them and, and to teach them. So they're like, hey, you know, we have this land. Let's, let's, let's sell it and give it to the church like Barnabas. Now, here's the unwritten stuff, and this is Mark commentary. So beware. You know, I think that they may have not been motivated by the purest motives of love for God and love for community. They may have seen, may have seen Barnabas getting a lot of accolades and, and said, you know what? We'd like a little attention too. We, wanna, we want the, the pat on the shoulder and to be held up in front of the church and saying, this is a couple with whom we are well pleased, right? Why would I, why would I say that? Because this is what happened next. Ananias came after they sold the land and he went to Peter and he said, Peter, here's the money from the land and, and we're giving it to the church. And, and, and I think there's a kind of a implication that, that, Hey, this is all the money. And Peter tells him, Hey, nobody's told you to do this. 
You don't have to do this. No, we want to do it. God's put it on our heart to do this. And we want to be like Barnabas. And we want to, we want to give all this money. And Peter's like, okay, great. And he's all like, so that's all the money. And Ananias is saying, that's all the money. And then Ananias drops dead. Drops dead. And they find out that, hey, he hadn't given all the money. And, I, and again, this is an unnerving story. And I think that, 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 you know, you can interpret it. Hey, you know what? God struck him dead, not because he didn't give all the money, but because his heart was prideful and wanting to, 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 to get the accolades of doing this. And I think that the more skeptical among us that we could say, you know... Those Bible people, they didn't know medical stuff. He probably had a brain aneurysm or something like that and whatever. You know, you know I mean, it's interesting timing. I'll give you that. But is that, is that really what's going on? Well, here's where the story gets really, really interesting. Three hours later, when Sapphira is, is coming into the church, apparently she knows nothing about you know, Ananias, her husband, dropping dead. You know, no Twitter, no, you know, Ananias, you know, is trying to be prideful, you know, and, and God struck him dead, slash, hashtag, you know, tithe or something, you know, or, or God's crazy, you know, or, or something like that. No, nothing like that. She's walking in, completely oblivious. They apparently have moved the body. And Peter goes, so, you sold the land. Yeah, I sold the land. We're giving all the money. And, and, and he's like, so, how much did you sell the property for? And she says the exact same amount that Ananias said. And then, boom, she dies on the spot. And... This is all to say and all, all to look that, that Ananias and Sapphira and Saul, they were really 99% obedient. But that one last 1%, this, this willful 1% made them 100% disobedient. And putting myself in Saul's place and putting myself in Ananias and Sapphira's place, you kind of understand, right? You understand, hmm, you know, God, I don't know if you're right here. This doesn't seem right. Maybe I need to take control of my life just a little bit and make some decisions here. And at this point, it's this 1% where this one willful kind of uh, resistant percent that discredits everything else and takes us from being fully devoted followers of Christ to people who are captains of our own destiny. 
And I think that Solomon's 99% obedience and his 100% disobedience set up this crisis that we find ourselves in Esther. And because if, if Haman wasn't there and wasn't a descendant of King Ag, that he would not have had this encounter. Now, scholars are split on the interpretation of of Mordecai refusing to bow down to Haman. And some say that that Mordecai was a, a man of principled faith. And I think that we can appreciate that and look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's the way I would want to be. In the, in the face of, of all of this, you know, oppression and all of this, you know, danger, that I'm going to stand up and be a man of faith. And many pastors have liked to paint Mordecai as a, as a man of unwavering faith and making the point that we too should be defiant in our faith, in the, in the face of, of, of oppression. But in doing so, I don't think that they give enough weight to Paul's or Peter's writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he said, For the Lord's, Lord's sake, respect all human authority, whether the king as a head of state or the officials, For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and honor those who do right. It is God's will that that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love your Christian brother and sister. Fear God and respect the king. But even more so than that, I think the biggest chink in the, in the kind of the presentation of Mordecai, the righteous, falls in the last four words of verse 2 in chapter 3. Where it says, Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. And I think this combined with the fact that he told Esther not to reveal that she was a Jew painting a picture of, of, of Mordecai here. But why, why would he tell her that if he was this steadfast, steadfast mountain of righteousness and truth? Hey, you don't tell people a Jew, but I'm, I'm going to not show somebody respect based in my religion, in my calling. I don't know. And I think there's one last piece to this puzzle about Mordecai and trying to interpret his behavior, why he wouldn't bow down and why he wouldn't show respect. And, and that is that, that Mordecai's family is part of the Jewish faction 
that chose not to go and re-enter the promised land. You see, they are in Susa, in modern-day Iran, because Nebuchadnezzar had exiled them. But then when King Cyrus came around after Nebuchadnezzar, that, that, that he said, hey, you know what? All you Jews can go back to the promised land. And there was a whole group of Jews who decided not to go. And and many scholars agree that they didn't go because of economic reasons. They had businesses. They had homes. They had relationships and said, you know what? We're just going to live in exile. It's better this way. And then there was a group of people who said, you know what? We're going to base our decisions on faith. And we, and God said, this is the land that he has given it to us. And we're going to occupy that land and so they went from, from, from uh, being in exile to claiming or reclaiming the promised land. So here we have this guy, Mordecai, who's refusing to bow down or pay any respect to Haman. And again, bowing down is like a salute in our culture. It's not as an act of worship or show him respect. And him telling... Uh, Esther not to reveal her faith and being part of kind of uh, the, the willing exiled that all of these things make you say, you know, is this man Mordecai the righteous or is Mordecai just really being kind of a jerk? And through this has put in jeopardy Not only himself, not only his family, but all his people. The second thing is, and we get to now our dicer deity moment of the day, is when Haman rolls the dice, when Haman casts lots. And here's our question. Is it dice or deity that Haman casts lots, rolls the dice for a genocide date, and it comes up almost a year later, about as late as it possibly can. Is God in the rolling of the dice here and protecting the people of Israel? Is he protecting them and giving them a year to prepare for the ensuing genocide? Or was it just merely a roll of the dice? Was it just luck? And again, how we answer these questions directly impacts how we view the events in our lives. One interesting thing, uh, one verse in Proverbs 16, verse 33, I think this is a really interesting verse. It's almost like I placed it there, but believe me, I didn't. We may throw the dice... But the Lord determines how they fall. And I think as a follower of Christ, this verse in Proverbs should be very, very comforting. Because what this verse is telling us is that everything is sifted through the permissive will of God. But that's also very problematic. Because many of us have had horrible adversity come into our lives. Some of us have had loved ones die too soon. Some of us have had relational hurt 
all of us have had relational hurt. Some of us have lost a child. Some of us have lost a job through unfair circumstances. And I have heard it say, you know what? You know, you have faith, and I know you've heard this too. Christianity is just a crutch. It's just your easy way out. You know what? I think it's a heck of a lot easier in this sense to be an atheist and just say, you know what? It's just a roll, you know, roll the dice, you know? Bad stuff happens. And hopefully, you know, there's some karma out there and what goes around comes around or whatever. I think it is very, very, very difficult to actually believe that God is sovereign and believe that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and then experience adversity and pain and hurt in our lives because that must have us ask the question and confront God and say, God, if you are truly a loving God and you are truly in control, how could you allow this to come into my life? But I believe by asking this question that we come up to the dividing line of what it truly means to be a person of faith. This is the question. Is Christ just our Savior? Or is Christ our Savior and Lord? Do we fully live out the vision that God has for us? Or do we... Pull up short at 99% and say, I need to control. This is the question. It really, for a person of faith or somebody who claims that they're a person of faith, is the only question. Because if God is not in control, what are we doing? And I believe the only way forward is to understand our place in the story of God, in the kingdom of God, to understand that, you know what, God is faithful. God will make all things work together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, not my immediate good, but the good of the kingdom. And this is extremely freeing if you allow it to be. In Romans, excuse me, yeah, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Paul writes, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So when you're Boss is unfair to you. You know, do you switch the salt and the sugar? Or do you trust that God 
is in control. When somebody wrongs you, do you go out and have to exact revenge or do you trust that God will take revenge and pay them back? Do you believe that all things work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? But you know what? I think it would be a lot easier if the scripture just stopped there and go, okay, I'm just going to release it. I'm just, it's all good. God's got it. Let go and let God. Yes. But again, Christianity is hard. It's not a crutch. It's hard. Because in verse 20, the very next verse, so you can't miss it. If your enemies are hungry, punch them in the face. Ah, my dyslexia got the best of me there. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Tell me that's easy. It's not easy. They're your enemies. By definition, you don't like them. They're not easy to love. It's not like if your grandma is hungry, give her something to eat. Unless you have to go out and get it. No. So, I mean, you got this double-edged sword. I think that's a good use of it. Let God worry about exacting revenge. And while he's doing that, you fix him a turkey pot pie. <laughs> Next time says, your Christianity is a crutch. It's easy. You just laugh in their face. No, you don't do that. Give a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 21, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Definitely in the wish it wasn't in the Bible series, right? Tough stuff, tough, tough, tough stuff, stuff. So let me lead, lead you, leave you with this. This is the question. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Is God in control? Can he take the adversity in your life and make it work together for good? When your trusted loved one breaks your trust, can you allow God to take care of that? And have you follow through with what you're responsible for? And that is being an ambassador of Christ to him. When your coworker lies about you and it ends up in a demotion or you being fired or just adversity at work, can you leave the revenge up to God and can you love that person? If a sickness or a death, untimely death happens in your family, And your heart is broken, especially if that sickness or, or death was because of someone else's malice. Can you allow God to carry that? And you tangibly or love that person? I'm not saying it's easy. 
Anybody who says it's easy is a fool. Flat out fool. And anybody that says Christianity and being a follower of Christ is easy, they don't know what they're talking about. They're a fool too. Sure, we can go through life as a Christian atheist, Christian in name, but don't trust God as God. Or we can confront the tough questions in life or the tough question in life. God, if it's true that everything that comes into my life is sifted through your permissive will because it's going to work together for good. Do I trust that that will happen or do I need to take control of my life? And by answering that question, you will be left with the answer, at least for your own heart. Is am, am I a person who only accepts the salvation of Christ? Or do I truly accept the salvation and also God is my Lord? You guys pray with me. Thank you.